Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi, beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. For the Taisho today, Sunday the 21st of March 2021, um, the autumn equinox here in the southern hemisphere and the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere. We're going to be mainly reading from a book called uh, River of Fire, River of Water. An Introduction to the Pure Land Tradition of Shin Buddhism. And this is by Tai Tetsu Onno. We just, um, this moments ago, finished Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen. And uh, he ends the chant with these words that, that have always I found so powerful. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. This very body, the body of Buddha. And there's a reference here to pure land Buddhism. Um, the pure lotus land is um, the, the pure land of pure land Buddhism. Um, 
Pure Land Buddhism is um, a practice that um, involves chanting in Japan what's known as the Nembutsu in order to be reborn in Amida's Western Paradise, Amitabha in, in Sanskrit. And the Nembutsu is, is um, uh, Namu Amida Butsu. It means praise to Amida Buddha. And um, this is the, the central practice. Um, calling on Amida with this chant is the central practice of um, Pure Land Buddhism. In uh, Master Hakun's writings, there is a long letter uh, written to somebody who had written to him asking to, for him to talk about the pros and cons of the Nembutsu versus Mu. And, and clearly, um, given the, the length uh, of, this, of uh, this response that he gives, he had, uh, Hakuin had a lot of familiarity with Pure Land practice. Um, and it was, it was a prominent form of practice in his time. Um, and in his letter, he certainly gives strong critique of uh, this practice. And um, he never, Hakun never holds back, so it's pretty pretty strong. Um, but that's not all that he does in in this uh, letter. And I'd like to just read some um, little bits of it to give you some sense of what he's talking about. Um, he says at one point. It is unparalleled ignorance to believe that one can become a Buddha without seeing into one's own nature or that there is a pure land outside of one's own nature. This is what he's, of course, what he's saying at the end of our uh, chant that we just did. Earlier he says, if you, if you take up one koan, and investigate it unceasingly, your mind will die and your will will be destroyed. It is though a vast empty abyss lay before you, with no place to set your hands and feet. You're f you face death and your bosom feels as though it were a fire. Then suddenly you are one with the koan, and both body and mind are cast off. This is known as the time when the hands are released over the abyss. This reminds me of something that um, Chogyang Trimpa said. Um, something like, um, enlightenment is like uh, uh, or enlightenment or, or, or a realization of emptiness um, is the good news is uh, the, the bad news is that it's like jumping out of the play, a plane. And the good news is there's no ground underneath you. <laughs> so he's talking about this time of, of, of uh, one's hands being released over the abyss, this feeling of, n of nothing you can um, uh, rest on. Then when suddenly you return to life, there is the great joy of one who drinks water and knows for himself whether it is hot or cold. 
This is known as rebirth in the pure land. This is known as seeing into one's nature. You must push forward relentlessly and with the help of this complete concentration, you will penetrate without fail to the basic source of your own nature. Never doubt without seeing into your own nature you cannot become a Buddha. Without seeing into your own nature there is no pure land. So he's very adamant that we don't try and um, conceptualize that there is a pure land outside of us or that that um, it is something different from realizing our true nature. He also um, emphasizes that even um, comparing and contrasting these two practices is misses the point. He says, studying Zen, calling the name, meaning the Nembutsu, even reading and reciting sutras are all aids in the path towards seeing the way. They are like the staves that travellers use to aid them in their journeys, journeys. In other words, a stick or a staff, a walking stick. Among staves there are those made of goosefoot and those made of bamboo. Though the staves are made of different materials, they both serve the same purpose, to help the voyager in his travels. Do not say then that the goosefoot staff is good and the one made of bamboo poor. If the voyager loses his perseverance and collapse of fatigue, what use is either staff, no matter what it is made of? It is the same with studying Zen under a teacher. Its essence lies only in the one instant of thought borne by the fierce perseverance of the practitioner. Don't say the koan is good and the calling of the Buddha's name is bad. If the practitioner does not have that valiant will to succeed, neither the calling of the name nor the koan will be of any use whatsoever. They will be of as much value as glasses for a blind person or a cone for a monk. So he, he, he um, insists that we, we examine ourselves, not put the power with, the, with what, which practice we're doing. Sometimes people will, will switch back and forth between practices trying to, trying to figure out um, which one is the, is the right one for them. But it's really a matter of being the right person for the practice rather than the other way around. Again, Master Hakuan, it must be understood that the koan and the recitation of the Buddha's name are both contributing causes to the path that leads to the opening up of the wisdom of the Buddha. The opening up of the wisdom of the Buddha is the main purpose for the appearance of the various Buddhas in this world. In the past, the Buddha established expedience. One was called rebirth in the pure land, another seeing into one's own nature. How can these be two different things?
He goes on. Zen people who have not penetrated to this understanding look at the Pure Land practitioner and think that he is stupid and, and evil, a common person who knows nothing about the great matter of seeing into one's own nature. They may feel he is vainly reciting the Buddha's name in the hope of leaping across countless countries in broad daylight in order to be reborn in the Pure Land, and they liken him to a lame turtle that dresses itself up and then expects to jump over to China. They contemn him particularly for not knowing that as far as these countless countries are concerned, the ten evils and the eight wrong views herald the awakening to the wisdom of Buddha, and, the, and that when these ten evils and heresies are dissipated, the very place where one stands is the pure land. The pure land practitioner, on the other hand, looks at the Zen person and thinks that here is someone who has no faith in the saving grace of Amida, but pridefully seeks to gain awakening through their own efforts and tries to make the great awakening their escape from birth and death. Isn't this the most ridiculous of practices? Is this something that we poor mortals of inadequate capacities can accomplish in this degenerate age, they ask? So they scorn the Zen person and compare him to a duck that, deciding it will fly to Korea, fits itself with ring wings, thinking that it can emulate a hawk. So I read these just um, not because anybody in our group is um, looking down on people from the Pure Land School probably, but we do sometimes look down on people of other faiths and um, maybe feel pride, pride about our own path, the lofty path. It's, I think one kind of interfaith rule is to always compare the best of your faith with the best of another faith, the highest to which it can go, uh, rather than comparing the highest of one's own faith, so the greatest ideals, with the with the the um, sort of ordinary achievements in the in another another tradition. Feeling feeling pride about our our particular practices, of course. Um, contradicting the very uh, purpose of practicing, which is to, to um, dismantle our um, sense of self, sense of superiority. Anyhow, that's um, that's enough of Dogen, of uh, Hakuin. But now let's turn to our text, and just in really in the spirit of what we might be able to learn from Pure Land practice, both from where at the times uh, diverges from our, our own Zen practice, and also where the two come together, which is in many places as well. And it might help to understand that that the Pure Land arose in Japan um, at the very same time that Master Dogen was uh, re renewing Buddhism through his, his teaching on, on, on Soto Zen. And it was also the same time um, that uh, Nichiren was champion championing the Lotus Sutra. So these three different movements all happened uh, at the, roughly the same time and had some things in common 
and one of them was bringing Buddhism out of its sort of elitist position in Japan, which it, where it had become very corrupted by 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 the power that it was that was conferred on it by the the ruling classes. Um, and these other three these other three traditions were ways of, of um, bringing the teachings of Buddha to the people more. And before before we get into the teachings, just a little bit a little bit more background, um, historical background for Pure Land, so to understand where it fits into into the Mahayana. Um, it, the beginnings of it go back to the emergence of the Mahayana around the um, first century of the Common Era. And it's based on three sutras um, of that time. The largest sutra of Pure Land, the smaller sutra of Pure Land, and the sutra on contemplating Amida Buddha. Um, in the largest sutra, um, it's, a, it's a discourse given by Shakyamuni Buddha on Vulture Peak, as many of the sutras are located there. Um, and he tells, in this larger sutra, he tells the story of a bodhisattva called Dharmakara, who makes a series of 48 vows to save all beings. And he ultimately fulfills these 48 vows and attains supreme enlightenment. And he, at that point, becomes Amida Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, the Buddha of immeasurable light and life. And so this is the story, the narrative on which this particular school of Buddhism is founded, this great, this great compassion of Dharmakara. It was the practices in these sutras were known about and practiced at times, but not not as more and more as a part of other practices within the, the Tendai and Shingon schools. As I mentioned, Tendai and Shingon flourished among among um, aristocratic circles, especially during the Heian era, uh, 794 to 1185. And towards the end of this period, the Pure Land teachings became more uh, widely known and started to slowly spread. And then as these these traditions um, declined in power and influence. Um, the, these newer teachings came to the fore. It was in 1175 that Honan Nen, the, the, who's the founder of Pure Land, um, began to uh, teach Pure Land as a, as a sort of standalone um, practice. And, and the, especially the, the Nembutsu, Namu Amida Butsu, one translation of which is, I untrust myself to Amida Buddha, or call upon Amida Buddha. Honan taught that this, this practice was um, 
sent to humans, sentient beings, uh, especially for, for people living in the age of Mapo or the end time of history. This was believed to have arrived as evidenced by the earthquakes and floods and drought and famine, civil wars, pestilence, conflagrations that were sweeping around Japan at this time. As the world became increasingly unstable and chaotic, traditional Buddhism, supported by the privileged castes, became increasingly irrelevant to the times, and the demand for a new religiosity to meet the spiritual needs of the age came, became more intense. And this was the, the, the kind of void that was filled by uh, new, new teachings of the Pure Land, as well as um, the other two schools that I mentioned before. Pure Land met the spiritual hunger of the people and attracted a mass following. For those who had been excluded from the Buddhist path, it was the saving grace. Those who had been excluded were fishermen and hunters who made a living by violating the precept of non-injury, peasants who were considered lowly and ignorant, women of all classes, and monks and nuns who had broken the monastic precepts. Here in, in this special inclusion of these groups of people um, who, who had been excluded in, in, uh, at other times, you can see a, a similarity with, with um, Christianity and the Christ's message of, of valuing, cherishing sinners. There are quite a few, quite a few uh, uh, parallels with Christianity. Um, in Christianity, we find the, the Jesus prayer, which is a, a parallel uh, practice to the Nimbutsu, where practitioners will will repeat in their heart, um, "Our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner." There's a, um, a little uh, book, booklet, um, The Way of the Pilgrim, which, which um, recounts the uh, a pilgrim who takes up this practice. It's very impressive, very inspiring uh, story. The new school stood out in many ways from the traditions that preceded it particularly in the way it would be integrated into common everyday life. Shin Buddhism makes no sharp distinction between clergy and laity as far as the possibility of enlightenment is concerned. Everyone, regardless of differences in age, class, gender, profession or moral culpability, would attain Buddhahood by the working of great compassion. It naturally followed that this religious path would be harmonious with family life. Consequently, marriage was approved and the celibacy of monastic life was reversed, beginning with Shinran himself, who got married and openly, openly negated the, the ideal of celibacy. The dojo, or training place for the practice of Buddhism, is everyday secular life, not some cloistered enclosure or privileged space. That Honen and Shinran discovered the way to bring the Buddhist truth alive in the midst of the householder's life was real genius. 
in the words of Shinran. All people, men, women, high or low station, in saying the name of Amida are not restricted to walking, standing, sitting or reclining, or to time, place or conditions. Of course, this is a teaching that we find in, in Zen too, that we can bring the practice to uh, whatever we're doing, whatever position we're in, uh, whatever time it is, whatever conditions we face, we can take up take up the breath, koan, just being with whatever is going on at any given time. So in this regard, the, the teachings of the Pure Land and, and of Zen um, are very much in harmony. Now just um, a little bit of, of um, biographical material about the writer of this book before we get on to some of his, his teachings. His name is Tai Tetsu Onno. He writes, There are 84,000 paths to liberation and freedom from self-delusion, according to Buddhism. The wealth of possibilities may seem to make liberation more than accessible, but they are not spelled out in some Enlightenment mail-order catalogue. Which path a person takes is often not a matter of choice, but decided by the accidents of birth, circumstance, encounters and quirks of fate. Yet there are defining moments for each of us that can change the entire course of a life. Such a moment for me was the shocking suicide of my best friend. I was 24 at the time. I think we can all identify moments in our lives that were uh, defining. And I think recognize that that um, some things just seem accidental. Um, I think it was Aiken Roshi who described his own um, coming to the path as willy-nilly Zen. He continues, I had been in Japan for two years following my graduation from the University of California at Berkeley in 1951. My ambition was to become a Buddhist scholar. Through the intermediary of D.T. Suzuki, whom I had met during my senior year in San Francisco, I enrolled at the Tokyo University Graduate School as a special student before matriculating in the regular program in Buddhist studies. Living in Japan, which at that time was still suffering the devastation of World War II, I came to have mixed feelings about my new home. Having grown up in a Japanese-American family, I could easily identify with its rich cultural past, but not with its contemporary history and its people. It was difficult to fully comprehend the kind of suffering that war had brought to them. And yet, in America, I had never really felt at home either, my family and I had been among the 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry 
who had been incarcerated behind barbed wire fences in concentration camps, so-called by then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt, without due process of law. Now, in Japan, but still lost and confused, a stranger in a strange land, I was searching for some kind of mooring. It was at that point that I was befriended by Teruo, a brilliant older philosophy student also at T Tokyo University. I'm guessing that many, many, many of us can identify with the sense of alienation that um, Ono is talking about here, a feeling of, of somehow not belonging or a feeling that one's in some sense living outside of one's life, on the edges. I felt a close kinship with Teruo, in part because of our shared interest in discussing issues of a philosophical nature. We compared notes on Japanese and American cultures, gossiped about professors we knew and about courses we took, exchanged notes on impetuous liaisons with the opposite sex and shared our dreams and hopes for the future. But a dark, persistent cloud hovered over the bright promise of Teruo's future. His frail health due to tuberculosis in his youth. Effective medical treatment was lacking at that time and his body had been ravaged by the effects of the disease. He was frequently exhausted and in great pain. He came increasingly frustrated that he could not sustain the vigorous demands of a highly competitive academic life. One day of hard studying needed to be compensated by two full days of quiet rest. When we experience pain and suffering, it is only natural to ask why. Such was probably the case when Teruo one day asked me, what is karma in Buddhism? It was on the eve of his graduation from the university and we were sitting having a beer in a German-speaking bar in Tokyo's Ginza district. I have failed to perceive, perceive or appreciate the deep feeling that motivated his question, and I glibly quoted some abstract theories that I had just read in a Buddhist text and abruptly changed subjects. As we left the bar to go home, Teruo said that he had some tickets for a dance the next evening. We said goodnight, and I promised him that I would drop by his home the following afternoon. We could go to the social together. The following day, as promised, I went to his home shortly after the noon hour. When I knocked on the door, Teruo's mother came to the door with a worried look on her face. She said, Teruo didn't come home last night. Knowing that he could have stayed out all night drinking, as he sometimes did, I calmly reassured her, I'm sure that he'll be home soon. I'll come back later. Late that afternoon, I went to a noodle shop. The evening edition of the newspaper had just arrived, and as I picked up the paper, I read the headline with horror, College Student Commits Suicide. I instantly knew that it was Teruo. He had taken an overdose of sleeping pills, swallowing them with soft drinks, in the compounds of a Zen monastery south of Tokyo. Did he decide to take his life because of his failing health, the anxiety of academic competition, or some unknown existential crisis. I rushed back to his home, 
hoping somehow to comfort his mother, who had also just heard the tragic news of her son. Devastated, she had lost her only son, upon whom she had showered love and affection. She wailed in grief and mourning. This went on and on. Though I searched desperately for words to express my sympathy and for words that might comfort her, none came forth. That evening I stayed up all night going over the tragic happening again and again. Three questions loomed large in my mind. First, I wondered if Teruo was now happy. Was he now at peace? I thought about this for a long time, but instead of an answer coming to me, there was only silence. Secondly, I wondered what I could say to Teruo's mother. What is the one word of compassion that I could offer her for her painful loss? I wasn't looking for hackneyed phrases of condolence, but truly uplifting words. But again, I didn't know. There was only a void. And thirdly, I kept thinking of Teruo's question to me. What is karma, really? As I thought deeply about it, I realized that such an objective question, having little to do with my own existence, would invite only empty, abstract answers, answers of the sort I had given Teruo on the previous night. For a truly meaningful answer, the question of karma had to become more concrete. Who am I? What am I? Where did my life come from and where is it going? There was only a blank. I thus found myself at an absolute impasse. I could not change the past. I could not go forward. I could not stay still and find peace in the present. Somehow I would have to find my way out of this predicament, but I felt truly lost. Yet, as all these questions and frustrations were circulating in my mind, I remembered the Pure Land parable of the two rivers and white path. Attributed to Shan Tao, the Pure Land master of 7th century China, it depicts the existential predicament in which one is made to awaken the aspiration for enlightenment, bodhicitta. My painful struggle came, became slowly illuminated by this ancient parable. In the parable, a traveller is journeying through an unknown and dangerous wilderness. Soon he is pursued by bandits and wild beasts, and he races to get away from them. Running westward, he eventually comes to a river divided into two, separated by a narrow white path. The white path is only a few inches wide and runs from the near shore to the far shore. On one side of the path, the river is filled with leaping flames, that reach 20 feet into the air. On the other, the deep river has a powerful current that overflows with dangerous waves. Even though the white path is the only possibility of escape across the perilous river, it is not an alternative because of lapping fire and waves. Filled with fear, the traveller cannot go forward, cannot go back, and cannot stand still. In the words of Shan Dao, he faces three kinds of imminent death. Then, just at that time, the desperate traveller hears a calming voice right behind him on the shore. 
urging him to go forward on the white path. Go forth without fear. No danger exists, but if you remain, you will surely die. Just then he hears a beckoning call from the far shore. Come just as you are, with singleness of heart. Do not fear the flames and waves. I shall protect you. This, is, of course, is Amitabha speaking. And with this, this very moving invitation, come just as you are, with singleness of heart. To have the faith that we, we practice from just where we are right now, that we that Anmitabha's arms are open for us, just as we are. But he says, not just come just as you are, but also with singleness of heart. In other words, not not divided against ourselves but with singleness of heart, with the understanding that everything is Buddha nature, including our, our shortcomings, our, our afflictions, our worries, our regrets, Shandao tells us that the river of fire connotes anger, the river of water, greed. The two joined together make an odd picture, but they illustrate how the overflowing abundance of greed and anger can fill our lives. In our greed, we want to make life move according to our desires. When we do not get our way, our passions are stifled and anger erupts. The two... The two um, complementary poisons. Uno goes on to, to decode this, this story. The eastern shore, the side where the Rick Traveller encountered his dilemma, is the world of delusion, samsara. The western shore is the other shore of enlightenment, nirvana. While this side is the defiled land, the far side is known as the pure land. Connecting the two is a narrow white path. The tenuousness of the past shows the weakness of human aspiration to break through self-delusion into happiness and freedom. The pursuing bandits represent enticing teachings that abound in our world, all promising immediate material benefits and psychological relief. They may provide temporary answers, but no true liberation. The wild beasts manifest instinctual passions that keep us bound to the shore of delusion. Both pull us away from moving forward on the path. The voice of encouragement from the eastern shore is that of the historical Buddha, the teachings of Shakyamuni. The beckoning call from the western shore comes from the Buddha of immeasurable light and immeasurable life, Amida. As one heeds the urging of Shakyamuni, the aspiration to move forward becomes pure and powerful. And as one embodies the call of Amida, it becomes single-minded and unshakable. 
The aspiration for supreme enlightenment is none other than the white path, now expanded and made safe, now an open passage through the flames of anger and waves of greed. continues, in reflecting on the parable, I saw myself as that traveller, a sojourner in life with a chequered history. Pushed by false ambitions and pursued by demons within, I now confronted the three kinds of certain death. While being comforted to see my predicament described precisely by this parallel bill, it did not tell me enough about how to get out of it. I began desperately searching for teachers to point the way. When I could find no one around me, I began a random, voracious reading of existential literature, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the scriptures of world religions, Buddhist literature, including contemporary interpretations, the Bhagavad Gita, Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, the New Testament, and so on. Some of this was useful on one level, but none cleared the confusion that prevailed. The glaring light of day was difficult to bear. The darkness of night seemed to lessen the agitation. Alcohol definitely eased the pain. At one time I thought of abandoning my studies altogether. At another time I plagued the idea of becoming a monk. Slowly, however, after months of indecision and uncertainties, I began to find a faint sense of direction. The weight of my family background Generations of Shin Buddhist priests on both my mother's and father's sides became decisive. Until that point, my interest in Buddhism was primarily academic. In fact, I had little interest in the solace it promised, especially in its pure land form. But now my focus became a personal quest. I moved forward on the white path, the world of Japanese, and the Japanese, world of Japanese pure land opened up. Welcomed by fine teachers and exemplary Exemplary lay devotees, they helped me to formulate answers, however tentative, to the three questions that had arrested the course of my life. But the process of finding inner peace was not easy because of a maze of abstruse doctrines and technical religious terms that I needed to unravel. I needed to reduce them to the point that they resonated with the pragmatic turn in my own nature. My varied excursions since that time into philosophical, religious and psychological fields have focused on pursuing answers within the framework of the three basic questions concerning death and dying, the meaning of true compassion and my karmic existence as infinite finitude. This last one, the depth of my, the, my karmic existence as infinite finitude, I think that also resonates with the Zen teaching. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The relative and the absolute are not two. They aren't the same. But nor can we separate. As I proceeded on my quest, I discovered that these questions are not uncommon among contemporary people, regardless of the religious affiliation or lack thereof. For who has not lost someone close because of cancer or the scourge of AIDS? and not questioned the person's fate. 
Who has not sought the one word of compassion to share with those who experience irretrievable, painful loss? And who has not questioned oneself as Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich did when he asked at the end of his seemingly successful career as a high court judge, what if my entire life, my entire conscious life, was not the real thing? All world religions grapple with these questions, but in my case, due to fortunate karmic circumstances, Shin Buddhism provides the answers that are illuminating, challenging, and constantly evolving. Despite the wealth of possibilities we may seem to have in the 84,000 paths to enlightenment, it is through encountering great difficulties and reaching an incredible impasse, as the traveller did, that we discover our individual paths. And, and the rest of, of the book, more or less, is um, his, own, his, his own personal experience um, seen through the lens of um, this teaching of um, the pure land, of the, the compassion, the, the, the primal vow, as he puts it, of um, Amida Buddha. Now on to um, a couple of, I've probably got time for maybe a couple of these um, short chapters in his teachings. This chapter is, is entitled The Colour Gold. He talks about how Although it was a kind of radical shift within Japanese Buddhism, a new form of practice, it, the goal is um, the same as that with the, that was found across Mahayana Buddhism. He says the goal is to awaken to the true self as a manifest dana, manifestation of Dharma or reality as is. What this means may be illustrated by some popular metaphors in Pure Land tradition. The first is the metaphor of the colour gold. Down through the ages, this metal has been the most highly prized of possessions. It has also been associated with things of a spiritual nature, and each religion has found it a rich symbol. Gold adorns the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments. Gold is remembered by Christians as the precious gift of the Magi to the newborn Jesus. The giver of gold in the Rig Veda receives a life of light and glory, and the fifth Mohammedan heaven in Islam is made of gold. In short, gold has been the universal symbol of that which we value most. In Buddhism, the colour gold is no less precious, symbolising supreme awakening or enlightenment. The third of the 48 vows of Dhammakara, um, established and fulfilled by Amida Buddha in the largest sutra, claim, proclaims, May I not gain possession of perfect awakening if, once I have attained Buddhahood, any one among the humans and gods in my land are not all the colour of genuine gold. 
In other words, um, they're not all awakened, having experienced supreme awakening. So all is going to postpone his own enlightenment um, for, until all beings in his realm are fully awake. He goes on to another metaphor that one finds in Pure Land, which is the lotus flower. And whereas gold stands for our, our sort of collective awakened nature, the, the lotus fruit, on the other hand, represents each person as being unique, distinct from everyone else. Then he goes on to a third um, metaphor, a metaphor of transformed rubble, based on a scripture that reads, we who are like bits of rubble are transformed into gold. All embracing and non-exclusive, this path accepts everyone, even the lowest, who consider nothing more than bits of rubble in the eyes of society. But no matter who or what one is, everyone is transformed through the power of compassion to become authentically real as an awakened person. Bits of rubble is the realization of those who, illuminated by immeasurable light and immeasurable life that is Amida, are made to see their essential finitude, imperfection and mortality. This realization may not sound too inspiring, but affirming one's basic reality is the crucial factor in the transformative process. To bring about such a transformation is the sole purpose of the primal vow of Amida, the working of great compassion that courses through the universe. A couple of comments on this. Um, get here this, this, um, this powerful image of, of the Amida his Mahmoudia's vow to save all being as being something that, that courses through the, the universe like, a, um, like a, a radio signal that we can tune into open ourselves to experience the other thing that strikes me about this passage though is a, is a contrast with the teachings of Zen there's, a, there's actually a Zen capping phrase um, rubble emits light and in, in the Zen rubble, the rubble is just rubble. But at the same time, um, it emits light. It, it, the Zen phrase say, celebrates the, the suchness of rubble itself. It's not, a, not standing for anything, but it, in its self-nature, it emits light. After one session in, in Rochester, uh, I went to Wigman's, a big supermarket, to do some shopping and saw the people in the shop, worried people, hurried people, um, 
grumpy people, all kinds, emitting light, shining. Shining in their essential finitude and imperfection and mortality, just being who they were. like to do another one but I think we, um, our time is up so um, we'll stop here and recite the four vows All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. Thank you.